You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I quit college to open a studio. I told my parents that I was going to college to work in broadcasting. I had a degree. I had a you know technical, which, uh, whatever they teach you in technical school. And, and I built a studio and I started recording people like Jose for free. That's why I couldn't make any money at it. But he introduced me to Nuno. We recorded the first Sinful was the name of the band, the first uh, demo there. Um, that is actually where I got my start. And I recorded Nuno and Sinful, of course. And then he went from right from Sinful to Extreme. Um, and uh, oops, there's my oh, cat. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello, kitty cat. <laughs> I love that. You've got a great cameo appearance from the, the studio. <laughs> that, tune in, tune into the YouTube guy so you can see Bob's <laughs> yeah. awesome board. His three Grammys. <laughs> and his cat and his cat's butt right in, right in the screen there yeah it's going to be in my face in about a second <laughs> hello everyone and welcome to another episode of 2020 i'm siobhan here as always with ben and Corey. and this week we are really excited to have another audio focused uh interview with bob st john legendary producer engineer mixer worked with extreme with nuno so many stories in this episode yeah, definitely another another fountain of knowledge, which we've been super lucky to you know have these these past few episodes here, uh, and we really really get into his relationship with Nuno and Extreme in this one. Yeah, if you haven't listened to the Extreme episodes uh, with Nuno, they're really good uh, backstory. So you come in and hear Bob's version of things because well he's awesome, and you should just listen to him. Part one with Bob St. John. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Benny Goodman. I am here with my cohorts, my compatriots, my other uh, insert a C word that sounds intelligent here. Corey Peza and Siobhan Cronin. How are you guys doing? doing Good. Great. Excited to be here. Yeah. I- I'm exceptionally excited because not only uh, have Corey and I been nerding out on the fact we've had these great engineers on, but the, the gentleman that has graced us with his presence today has literally been a part of some of the biggest records of my childhood that sculpted my mind when I actually cared about music and things and life in general. Uh, he's worked with Extreme. He's worked with Collective Soul, Duran Duran, um, a bunch of Latin music, which he won two Grammys for. And he's just an incredible engineer and producer. And so far, seems like a very nice guy. Bob St. John. <laughs> nice to be here. Yes, thank you for being here with us. My I think pleasure. I see three Grammys in the background. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm checking out the, the video here to see what's going uh, on. He's already there. he's being marked down one point for that. Oh man. <laughs> I actually said how I only saw two on the, the giant discography of all your awards, so I apologize. Maybe there it's are not clearly three. It's it's two American Grammys and one Latin Grammy. Amazing. Yes, yes. Is, you know, um, I, I'm very proud of those and very proud of the bands I've worked with here. For sure. That's incredible. Well, while, while we're on it, let's maybe introduce you to the audience and for people that may not know what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you came from, how you got involved in music and kind of how you got into the world of engineering producing? Um, originally, I'm from Milford, Massachusetts. I, I've lived in Miami here for 25 plus years. But oh, I'm a Miami um, person, too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and hello. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so. Uh, the only thing I ever really wanted to do with my life was record music. I come from a family of musicians. Very few people know that I actually can play. I stopped playing keyboards back when I decided I want to be a recording engineer. And uh, I play more now than I have in the past couple of years, just because it's become so much easier with computers and so much easier than chasing somebody down to get something done when I have an idea for a part. But, you know, the thing is, the only thing I really wanted to do was record music. That was it. And at that time, I had no idea how I was going to do that. I was basically a very introverted, shy kind of kid. And, you know, I wasn't going to walk into a studio um, and say, hey, give me a job, even though I'm looking back on it now, it would have been that easy. Because, you know, you can find anybody who can empty the trash and just get near the equipment. So what I did was 
I had a shop teacher tell me, I was in electronics because I have a background in electronics too. Shop teacher said, ah, Robert, you can't do record music. You make no money doing that. You can make money fixing TV set. So <laughs> I, this is Russian. I'm, I'm, the only accent I do, it sounds like it sounds like a, a Cuban who's from Transylvania. No, it was so. a great impression. I, I don't mean I, to interject, I, though. Out of that. <laughs> okay. I, I don't mean to interject, but he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong, but I mean, where would I be if I was fixing TV sets now? We throw them out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Continue on in your perseverance story. Yeah. I apologize. So, so, you know, I'm like, oh, wow. I still had that dream in my head, and I was very involved with music. I mean, my daughter, who's like 23 now, she's very involved with music, too. It's just part of who we are. I come from a family of musicians. And while I didn't know if I wanted to play music, you could see I was going towards these two things. So in order to be near music and technology and knobs and that sort of stuff, I thought, well, I could work in radio. I could be an announcer. I mean, I've always been completely enamored with the sound of my own voice. So I was all set <laughs> for that. Um, I started working at the radio station. But in the back of my mind was this thing was itching at me. I really want to be a recording engineer. And how am I going to do that? Uh, sitting and uh, I'm going to try and condense this story as best as I can. Uh, you know, when I was in high school, I sat next to this kid in American government. His name was Jose Anes. And Jose was this kid from, he was from Canada. He was Portuguese. He, you know, I was a good boy. I didn't listen to rock music or anything. And when I, I had set up a pirate radio station in my bedroom, I built a transmitter. I did all this stuff. I built my own console because wow. I had no money, but I had some know-how and how to do this stuff. Um, this guy was into music. He was like a long-haired pot-smoking freak to me. And like, you know, I was always <laughs> the good boy. And uh, a ship has sailed. <laughs> was always the good boy. And and I listened to him and his friend, Adam Ferecchia, you know, two good friends talking. And he sat next to me in American government. Adam was in front. We were in the back of the room. And he would show up almost always five minutes late for class. He'd come in class. He put his head down the desk, put the coat over his head. And I'm thinking, he's got me seated next to this delinquent. And uh, these guys were always talking about music. And from the way they talked about music, I could tell that this kid was in a band. I didn't know that, but I'm like, a band, music. I could record music. So I, you know, very sheepishly, because I was shy, I very sheepishly joined in on the conversation. Adam was that kid who, he had all the albums and everything else, and I became friends with him. And I said to Jose, just, I stuck myself way out on a limb, and I said, I said, I can, I, I've got some recording equipment. He's like, you can record my band, huh? And I said, yeah, I record your band. I had no idea how to record a band. So, but <laughs> I had two microphones. I had a mixer that I had made in a cigar box because I didn't know how to do any sort of like metal work. And I built it all out of Radio Shack parts with a microphone preamps in it. And I had a little four channel battery operated realistic mic preamp. I don't know how I got this stuff, but I had it. And I had some equipment I borrowed from a friend. So, he said, well, why don't you come down and record my band? I'm like, yeah, okay. So I put all the things I had, all the wires and microphones. I had like four or five microphones. I had barely enough to do the stuff. And they rehearsed at this place downtown in Milford. It was in an old building. I mean, when I walked in there, I can only describe it as a den of inequity. <laughs> it was just <laughs> a bunch of teenage kids drinking beer, smoking pot. You could hear somebody jamming Zeppelin down the hall and another band. And this guy had sublet this place out. It was pretty darn disgusting, like something you would see in a movie set for like disgusting band hangout. And <laughs> I'm looking for Jose. I'm like, where is this guy? Where is he? Because I, I, I walked right by him because he was making out with some girl up against a mattress that was pushed up against the wall. This is, so like, hey, says, <laughs> this is so, so heavy metal right now. <laughs> when you see where the story goes, it'll make yeah. a great monster. He's saint because people who've known me since I had hair, that's a long time ago, call me saint. Every now and then you'll see Nuno will call me saint when he's trying to be a smart ass. And I said, yeah, I'm set up. So I set up and I did it and I was just hooked. I still have that recording. I have nearly everything I've done in 40 years. I still have the recording. Well, what happens is Jose... And I became very good friends. And he was my my guinea pig for recording. That's what I did. I re and I had a quarter-inch um, open reel and a cassette with DB DBX, and I kept bouncing between them. This is how I learned how to make basic balances and all this stuff. Remember, 
you guys are lucky. You got computers and Pro Tools. I, I, all I had was my imagination and little Ford Channel mixer I made. And, and, you know, as long as I had batteries, I was happy. Um, That's adorable. I, I love the fact that you said that because I actually am from a time where I actually did use a, a four track recorder, but it was six tracks because we split two of the tracks. And I, right. I and I realized that Dolby C noise reduction actually stole some of the high end. So I, yeah. I tended to go Dolby B and I bought all the chromium dioxide tapes. Right. So I was alive for that before the computer. So I, I also sit on that uh, ivory tower. I you're right here. You look like you're about 28. So I'm. I'm <laughs> I turned 40 you next month. Ben's thank day. you. Uh, okay. <laughs> while while we're on this, before you go on, I want to ask mm -hmm. because you said you always wanted to be an engineer or do recordings. How did you know that? Like, what was your initial spark of inspiration for that? Because that seems very specific. Most kids um, they see an instrument. Like, how did you have that passion I was, so early? I was like five, four, five, six years old, I would grab all of my mother's 45. She says I ruined her whole collection, which I probably did. I would stare at the labels. I would put them on the turntable. I stuck a, a needle in a foam cup and made it play. I was just fascinated with everything to do with it. And by the time I was like six or seven, I started taking apart anything electronic. It made them crazy. I wanted to see how it works. I would buy stuff at flea markets and fix them so I could record stuff. And at first, I had nothing to record. I would record sounds outside, record fire trucks going by, and I just listened to it and figure out how I was going to make it better. It was my intentions were very pure, to say the least, you know. And that was, and then doing that, then I loved music. So I would buy albums and 45s. My mother gave me a, a dollar a week, and I would go and buy a 45. I still have those too. What was the first 45 you bought? Are uh, you ready for this? I'm not kidding. I had a little battery-operated Parrot uh, uh, turntable. And you know, I'm, because I was so private, I had a little earphone, and I went down to the music store, and the first song I bought was Zager and Evans in the year 2525. Don't ask me why. You dig that up and see what it is. I don't know why, but that's the first single I bought, I remember. at a big, bright orange If RCA. it was Don't Ask Me Why by Billy Joel, I would have liked that better. <laughs> but I, that, would, that would be another, like, 15 years later. 10 years no. later. Well, I was going to say, you look very good. No, thank you. <laughs> I'll be 16 two weeks. <laughs> so, thank you. Um, so that, you know, having that interest always is what got me there. And I loved music and I loved sound. And I wanted to be able to put these things together. And I, start, I started reading hi-fi magazines and I started hanging around with musicians. And then that's when I realized this is this is something I can actually do. I didn't know there would be a future in it. I didn't know who did it. If I could do it all over again, I'd just go assist at a studio in a music center like New York or L.A. or Nashville or something, which would be an easier path for anybody. You know, if you're driven and you're determined and you really want to do it, you can do it. It's just a, it's just a matter of sitting down and putting your mind to it. And, you know, as I've, I've done seminars and I've spoken to many young people and I have said many times, be prepared to not have a car, to not have a phone, to have your electricity shut off, because this life consumes you, and you don't make a lot of money. I've been very fortunate, but I started working with Jose in 1979, 80. I don't think I started making money doing this as a recording engineer until like 85 or so. And, you know, uh, I, so I, I'll continue the story because I got off track. Yeah, I yeah, I'll sure. just yes. keep going. Um, so... Jose and I would record in his basement all the time. He was my experiment. And he would be in one band after another, after another. And he tells me one day, he says, you know, you're putting together a new band. You know, he says, you know, because he's Portuguese and especially between being Portuguese and Canadian, and, you know, because I work with so many different Mediterranean cultures, you know, between Portuguese, Venezuelans and Argentinians, they're pretty sure they were put on this earth as a gift from God. So you have to contend with that. And then being from Canada was just like everything from Canada was automatically better. So Jose came to my house and he looked at my record collection. And he's like, this is cool. Would you got a radio station here? I said, yeah. He says, you got to put me on the air. And he says, so he starts looking at my record collection, which was pop music of the 70s. Carly Simon, Donna Summer, Bee Gees, Barry Manilow. And he's looking, he said, oh, wow, you don't have any music here. He says, listen, this is cool music. And he was a fan of music. He said, this is cool music, but you got to get some music. And he says, we're going to Strawberries. Then was the record store up north. And uh, Adam came with us. Love Strawberries. Yes. So, and so there I was in Strawberries with Adam and Jose. And Jose said, we're going to pick out the records. You don't have a choice. 
And Adam was a music freak. And so was Jose. I mean, you know, he's like a music encyclopedia. And, you know, so. So they go and I will tell you the records that they picked out for me. And remember, I worked all week to make this money so I could go buy. Remember, records used to be six ninety eight. Remember that? So, And uh, we walk out to the checkout. Here are here are my first rock and roll purchases. I got Zeppelin one. I got Van Halen one. Black Sabbath Paranoid. Uh, the Clash, London Calling, Cheap Trick, Live at Budokan, and uh, I think Rush Twenty One Twelve. So what we learned from this, what we learned <laughs> from this, Bob, is trust your friends. <laughs> Absolutely, because they know, are your friends. Because if you're I'm listening friends with to those Carly, guys to this day, Carly so. Simon and Barry and Barry Manilow, like listen, it's smooth. I get it. You can do some fall decor to that music, but. When you hear Led Zeppelin one, or you hear Cheap Trick in front of that crowd at live at Budokan, I mean, you know Zeppelin one, Rick Nielsen. I, those because I worked for my father summers doing concrete finishing. So in the afternoon, I come home in the morning listening. Zeppelin one was on my turntable for like at least two months, and I just digested and I absorbed these records. You know, of course, Jose was Canadian, so Rush was a big thing to him. And he got me into Rush. A little known fact about me, I've seen Rush live more than any band. I think I've only seen Extreme Live three times. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, and so Jose was my influence in this. And he, we just kept buying music. And, you know, I expanded what I knew, you know. And the back of my mind was, you know, I'm not going to be one of these pot smoking beaters. And, you know, f- fact, fact is, I didn't <laughs> smoke pot toys in my 30s anyhow, but. That wasn't me. That just wasn't me. But I love the music. I love being a part of it. So to condense this greatly, I recorded all of Jose's bands. And one day he says, yeah, I'm putting a new band together. And I'm like, yeah. He says, yeah, I got these, this, you know, Portuguese kid from Hudson. He says, he's really hot, man. This guy is going to be amazing. He's like 16 years old. And there's Nuno. At this point, I had a studio. I quit college to open a studio. I told my parents that I was going to college to work in broadcasting. I had a degree. I had a, you know, technical, um, uh, what's uh, whatever they teach you in technical school, and and I built a studio and I started recording people like Jose for free. That's why I couldn't make any money at it. But he introduced me to Nuno. We recorded the first Sinful was the name of the band, the first uh, demo there. And then from there, I you know got rid of the studio, went to work at a twenty four track. At this point, I wasn't going to be assisting because I was already engineering. You know, I, I just jumped right on it. The stuff, fortunately for me, it, it's always come naturally. So we started recording. That is how I met Jose. It goes back, I mean, how I met Nuno. And that's how it goes back to, you know, sitting next to a kid in American government, actually, you know, for mm-hmm. once just speaking up and saying, hey, I'm a recording engineer. So um, that is actually where I got my start. And I recorded Nuno and Sinful, of course, and then he went from right from sinful to extreme um and uh, oops there's my oh cat. hello <laughs> hello kitty cat <laughs> yeah. i love that you got a great cameo appearance from the, the studio <laughs> that, tune, in, tune into the youtube guy so you can see bob's <laughs> awesome board his three grammys and his cat <laughs> and his cat's butt right in, right in the screen there. yeah it's going to be in my face in about a second um and uh, so and i you know extreme they had just nuno had convinced the guys in the band that was formerly known as the dream right that, um they could have one guitar player gary was very reticent about that at first it's like eh, i don't know he liked the idea of the two guitar players on stage that aerosmith thing going on and nuno convinced him that they needed just one guitar player because honestly with nuno you need only one guitar player anyhow yeah and uh he convinced them and we recorded three songs up at the studio I worked at, which was called MCM. We did uh, White People Can't Dance and America Cocaine. Those are the three songs that we did um, on that first session. We had a great time. And then from there, we started working in other studios and recording demos. I think I recorded about 40 or 50 songs with them before they got their deal. It's funny, just real real quick before you go on, we, when we talked to Paul Geary, he talked about that, how they how they had written like, you know, a hundred songs and demoed all these songs, recorded all these things before they found the songs that they really felt 
represented the band right so that's cool to right. hear from the from the other perspective like that and i'm pretty sure that nuno told us that you know they had a guitar player who was a jerk to him in a previous life anyway uh so he <laughs> had a chip on his shoulder and then he came in and he auditioned with the other guy and then afterwards uh you know he, that dude went back to extreme and said it's either him or me and then nuno joined the band because nobody <laughs> could be in a band with nuno you can't play guitar on the same stage as that dude that's terrifying he is a force for sure there's yeah. no point you know I, I uh, you know, I, Joe Pesci, who's played in Drama Gods and all these other things, he plays with Gary. And Joe, to me, is the hardest working guy in show business. Joe can play with Nuno, you know. <laughs> but, you know, you have to be able to defer to Nuno. And, yeah, he's a formidable musician, you know. And he has very exacting ideas of what he wants. You know, he's not as difficult as he seems. I can say that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has his moments. And because I've spent so much time with them, we've been through a lot. I mean... Oh, we insulted him. So Corey and I went through one of those moments for at least six months straight. I, yeah. I feel like I should tell you this story for for your empathy alone because because okay, so, you appreciate this as an engineer. So we we asked. So for like five years with Lost Symphony, I'd been asking Paul Geary because he's a friend of mine, and and so are all the extreme guys except really Nuno. Was I didn't really know him. It's not that he wasn't my friend. I just didn't know him, and he's my hero. So mm-hmm. I always used to say to Paul Geary. Do you think that Nuno would want to play on our in- instrumental, you know, orchestral song? He's like, I don't think so, bud. And I'd, <laughs> I'd be like, but, but I, I would have said the same thing. So yeah, but please, can you ask Nuno to play on our song? Oh, I can ask him. And then he wrote back, no. And then, um, and then I think I asked again and said, can we pay you? And then he wrote something to the extent of, but why would you want to work with me? I don't even like your stuff. And I was like, because I love you. And finally, um, we we beat him down. Like, we whittled him down. I think we had a picture of his dog painted for him or something. Um, I'd sent it to his house. I went away above and beyond. And he's like, fine, I'll play it your song. It was a process, yeah. And then on, on my birthday, I get a track from Nuno, and he sent fires off, like, three, like, in a row. Within, like, you could tell he did just record it. Here you go. Just record it. Here you go. And I'm with Siobhan. And she looks at me and she, we had written this beautiful song uh, with piano and tons of violins. It was really open. And just the tone, because he had like delay on distortion, whatever, was like no bueno. And Siobhan had never heard Nuno. And she was like, is this the guy you're talking about? And I was like ready to cry because I'm like, oh my God. So Corey and I wrote back and we're like, hey, do you have a DI? Of what you just sent us. Uh, it seems like, and I made the mistake of saying, the tone might be a little flat or like something something like that. This and is oh boy. Crazy. I can tell you right now, this wasn't going to turn out good for oh you. Oh boy. Oh yeah. No, listen, I get this now. If I had seen the train coming and he, he just went off, he was like, what do you mean my tone? What, I bet you... And really what it was is that he had used delay on distortion on a very beautiful track. So the trail had distortion on it. And he said, you can't touch anything I do. So it was it was inappropriate as far as within the mix. There was no way it was going to work. And so I had said, can we, can, can we use something different? Flipped out, wrote me like a five page long message on all beautiful, beautiful. It was like a, the, just the syntax on it. He's like, Ingve doesn't mind my flat tone. He's in the next room. Steve Vai, listen, Steve Vai came up to me and actually said he liked my tone last night. Like this whole huge thing. This he goes, did not go well. No, no, no God giving, fearing musician who has his own tone or identity leaves it to, to, to the engineer he doesn't even know. How do you think I got my? sound even mentions mentioned you you think bob st john or michael wagner showed me how to get my sound like oh it was long so finally in this giant diatribe he says not everybody can play with like the something like the reckless abandon of martin marty friedman i said oh i got him because we know marty friedman and i said why don't i just have him play on a song with marty so he gets all angry i let him cool down would you like to play on a song with marty friedman fine <laughs> then when I start telling him well I thought you said you liked Marty Friedman I, I don't really know any of his songs you don't know Marty Friedman's song he came out the exact same I haven't listened to anybody past Ingve. he came out concurrent to Ingve with Jason Becker yeah I don't know who that is but I'll play with him and then Marty Friedman had the audacity to be like, oh, the, the more than words guy when they're two of the greatest <laughs> guitar players in the entire world so I finally get all those guys to play together and I can't even tell you how crazy it was, but when Nuno finally sent me this solo for this song, 
It was the greatest thing I had ever heard. It's for a tribute for my friend. I cried immediately. I So everything I had said that I had hated about the last one, he just fixed it. It was so much better. And by the way, I told him yeah. to get a Kemper. He said he would never get a Kemper. Then I see him playing Barracuda with like Tara, Taylor Hawkins with a Kemper right on his desk. And the tracks <laughs> he sent me were beautiful sounding like they came from a Kemper. Uh, but either way, he played the greatest solo ever. And I called Nuno and I say, thank you so much as I'm crying. And he goes, am I fired? And and I'm like, can I pay? No, you're not. That was the greatest thing ever. He goes, cool, man. I'm like, can I pay you for this? He goes, no, I don't want your money. And I'm like, I couldn't hate him more because the whole thing, he put me through hell and back. And he's like, I can't even take your money for this. I'm just happy you smiled. And it's the greatest solo I've ever heard. Take so I piece. had to share that with you. Before this. Yes, it's amazing. Sounds like no, no. <laughs> <laughs> My heart's elevated just telling that story because I love him so much. But at the same time, he put me through hell. Um, he can be a serious dick. Um, <laughs> you know, I've known him for so long and I'm privileged to be part of that whole small inner circle. Yeah. You know, most of us can get away with it. And, you know, we'll get into an argument. Nuno and I. I don't fight with anybody. I'm a very agreeable guy. Uh, but Nuno and I could get into it, especially towards the end of doing these extreme albums. I think by the time we did, you know, extreme four, he just aggravated me most of the time. And then, you know, after schizophonic, I'm like, I don't think I can work with this guy anymore because it just, you know, he doesn't make sense. And, you know, we went back and forth on so much stuff. And, you know, so I don't think, well, I did track, uh Sadaj, I, I did that. But I didn't record any more of it. Nuno did the rest of it at home. You know, I had come up with this ingenious three-dimensional drawing of how to set up the amp because you know we were only we were at NRG recording basic tracks and we were only going to be there for well originally we we're supposed to be like a week, but we were there for 22 days recording drums and bass. <laughs> this happens with extreme. Don't worry about that budget. That's no big deal. And uh <laughs> I moved the whole setup to his house when he lived in Santa Monica and he had a little space in the back. I says, listen, I'm going to put the cab and the microphones out here. And then I had my drawing. It was an ingenious drawing too, by the way, that point, you know, I was able to plot out distance from the floor to where the grill and the mic distance from this. I used, uh, you ever see these things you use when making angles in construction? Oh yeah. 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 To measure the angle was all written down. Can I have a copy of that, please? <laughs> so, there's one problem. There's just one problem. <laughs> I set it up in his house. Nuno half believing that, well, maybe we can pull this because he wanted to be able to use some of the live tracks he cut at the studio with, with the tracks that he had cut um, and that he was going to recut at his place. I had to leave like that night. So I got everything set up and I said, now listen to me. Don't go in that shed. Don't look at it. Lock the door. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lawnmower in there. It says, don't loan your lawn. <laughs> leave everything right where it is okay can you follow that instruction yeah i guess so so oh boy so he came in he played guitar even though you know it was, we were recording on a neve and i had a couple of universal um uh, mic preamps and we rented a 67 and an 87 exactly what i was using at the studio and i halfway didn't believe this would work so then you know i says come over here let's try this out so you know everything was set the same we had that uh, amp, I think we were using the Randall then, if I remember right. And we put that into, into the control room area, put it on, and I matched the gain. And he's like, dude, you're a genius. I says, listen to me. Be a genius like me. Don't touch it, okay? Yeah, yeah, no problem. And he was so happy because now he could, like, you know, you could use his live tracks. I knew he was never going to use his live tracks. That's no, no. But, you know, I left. I left the diagram. I didn't take a picture of it. I don't know why I didn't, but I left it there. I taped it to the to the preamp. I said, if anything gets moved, this is where it is. And if it gets moved, call me and I'll, I'll take care of it for you. Okay, yeah, right. So, you know, he doesn't do anything with it for like six weeks. And I get a phone call. He's like, hey, uh, what's I going to say? When he says, what, am I, what was I going to say? Now, when he says that to me, I just say, what do you want? Because... <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't just call you up to have a chit chat. I mean, during the pandemic, he called me, you know, a lot. I talked to him a bunch of times, more than I had in the past 10 years. He's like, yeah, what was I going to say? I says, what did you do? Yeah, well, I, I think I might have moved something. Um, I said, moved something? I told you not to go in there. He says, 
Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I was moving a shovel or something. You know, it's like you know, seven thousand dollars worth of microphones in a, in a tool shed. So I said, "Well, that's." But I'm like, "That's no problem. You've got the diagram." I says, "Do you know the diagram?" I says, "It's sitting on top of the. Uh, it's sitting on top of the UAD preamp." Yeah. Oh, oh, that. I says, "Yeah, it's a piece of paper. It's got a bunch of drawings on it." And, and you know, in a rarity for me, I actually wrote legibly. <laughs> and he says, "Oh." Yeah, you know what? I I think I was chewing some gum, and I thought that was just a piece of napkin, so I just wrapped it up and threw it out. I said, "Oh no!" I said, "Oh, oh!" Remember oh. that scene uh, from from uh, Ferris Bueller's Day? Uh, no, from <laughs> Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when Steve Martin's you know can't get a rental car and he goes back without his agreement, and the woman said, "Oh, you're fucked." That's what I said. <laughs> Well, well, can you come out here and set it up? I said, you want me to get on a plane, fly out there, move a couple of microphones and go home. Yeah, yeah, I guess that is kind of crazy. I says, yeah, it's super crazy. <laughs> he pulled it off. Pulled it off. <laughs> but, you know, he can he can be very mercurial. That's the best way yeah. to describe it. You know, you learn Good to word, deal yeah. with it. You know, when we were doing Sadaj, we were sitting in the studio and I've known him for so long know him through his various moods and he, he he's a super creative guy he can be moody some days he's having good days some days he isn't we're sitting there at nrg and we were like two weeks into tracking and uh when he would get upset his hair gets like really greasy and stringy and i knew this from when we were doing all those records together his screen three was the first time i really noticed it so we're sitting there and he's like this he's like i'm like you okay he says oh. Says I just had this flashback. I mean, suddenly, like you know, suddenly we're you know we're at New River recording Extreme Three, and the drums aren't right. And, and I said, and he said, I, I says, I said, listen, you you want to stop for the night? He says, I don't know. He says, I got this impulse, so I just wanted to run out the door and run out into the Hollywood Hills and not come back. <laughs> um, wow. I talked him down from that, and he continued working. It's the job. That's yeah, that's, the job. That, that's one thing we, we hear quite often is if you're an engineer or producer, you're also kind of a therapist. Uh, um, when I teach young uns how to do this, I tell them that, this, that knowing how to operate this crap, that is like being a taxi cab driver. You need to know where the brake and the accelerator and steering wheel are. Uh, but when it comes to dealing with musicians, that's a special kill, skill. That's what engineers get hired for, specific engineers, because they're comfortable with you being there. I mean, as time went by, working with Nuno over time, I became less and less involved, but he wanted me there. You know, when we were doing Sadaj, he recorded a lot of the bass, a lot of the, not the bass, but a lot of stuff himself. And I would just be sitting in the back of the room and he'd go, Hey, Bob, what do you think? And I'm always listening. I'm listening even when I'm not listening. And, you know, I'd say, Oh, you know, go back four bars. There's something wrong there. He's like, Oh, oh yeah. Right. Um, but eventually, you know, when he got Pro Tools, I was so happy because he has very exacting ideas of what he wants. Um, this way he could do all of that by himself the problem is it takes him forever to do it you know when we'd be recording solos i remember we were doing a, an extreme three he'd play through a solo and he'd be muttering like insulting things to himself under the breath under his breath oh i know like, that you're game, right that he means. says and he just go ah, let's do it again you know <laughs> um it was working in analog is a very stressful job with a guy like that you're required a special recording solos, which he has a basic framework he works with, but you're punching in parts over and over again. And you're talking about analog, no undo, and doing the same things 70 or 80 times in a row. I'm only human. But, you know, as, as time went by, he called me a racer head because I kept nipping off pieces of solos. <laughs> <laughs> that name stuck. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got way off topic. Well, no, no, just, no, it's just, all on just, topic. It's just to reference back, well, yeah. when I talked to Amit Sharma, who's a great writer at um, Guitar World magazine, the mm -hmm. first thing he asked me in his English accent, how did you get Nuno to play with such chromaticism? And I first off said, I don't know what that means. And then secondly, anger. Anger did. And you've just affirmed it because I truly believe, well, first off, my skill as an engineer is I've been told I, get, I bring out the full range of emotions with anybody. So my frustratingness, I, I, I out Nuno'd Nuno. So I basically convinced him to doing a solo that which is one of the greatest solos because he went in there like, fuck this guy. How do I fuck him by doing the greatest solo ever? So I could tell him I want to quit. And it was the great, it was the greatest thing ever. So you've just affirmed for me that all amazing 
especially guitarists that are of that level are mm-hmm. psychos in some way. There's something wrong with them. Like every single one of them. It's like every one of them. It's like you trade something with your sanity to be able to play so well that you literally hate yourself as you're playing He-Man woman hater. (laughs) I mean, the ultimate extreme disc to me as extreme existed in the purest form that, you know, when they were first signed would be extreme too. You know, um, Extreme 2 was mostly recorded in Boston. We didn't record a lot of it in L.A., um, you know, and, you know, I, I got some crap from Wagner when I mentioned this in the 25th anniversary DVD. Well, because the person who uh, the producer had it edited together in a really rude way for both of us. And he saw it and then I saw it. And then I said, I called the producers. You can't put these two quotes together. They're like juxtaposed in such a way, like we were saying different things. Wagner's always said, hey, this record was mostly done when it was brought to me. Um, uh, you know, because Paul Geary had this red light syndrome when he was recording, Nuno, Gary, Pat, and and I knew these were going to be the tracks for the album, but we didn't tell Paul because Paul gets something in his head about it. And those are his best performances is on Extreme 2. Paul's a great drummer. You know, Paul and Nuno were always like this, but, you know, he played the shit out of extreme two and to me that captures the band the essence of them that was at their peak a lot of people think extreme is more than words but they're not more than words they're all of that and then some you know it's it's weird and people look back and they're like you know what was your first big hit that was first grammy nomination was was more than words and of course it was number one in 14 countries it was a big deal and people say as an engineer i mean well yeah i i i engineered and mixed a song that has three instruments in it Woo! i was hot <laughs> so you know um and yeah very few people know you have to really be paying attention to the credits to know that there's actually three mixes of more than words there's the one that's on the album which you rarely hear because it's so long um there's the version i did which is 340 or so um that we went to Cortland studio which is where we had done all other demos and recorded extreme one and two and when they knew it was going to be a single, we recut some of the stuff. We we edited the song for certain, and it was classic analog editing. We transferred the digital into two-inch and did the editing and fixed a few things there. And that was one version. And then there's another version that I know the band hates that has the finger symbol and shaker in it that Brian Maloof mixed. Um, uh, and that stuff wasn't approved by the band. Nuno came out of his skin when he heard that. Because that was never that was never his intention for the song. But you know, leave it to a record label to say we need you know seven mixes of a song with three instruments. By all right, means, that, right. that's part of you know where Nuno comes from with this stuff, and it's why I've always understood him is that when we did Extreme Two, um, the the record label wouldn't allow us to produce the band, and you know. I use the term produce loosely because I feel most engineers are producers. Am I a producer in the purest sense of the word? No. But am I a producer in the sense of the word we use it now? Yes. Help define the performances. Um, uh, when when uh, they were doing Extreme 2, Nuno, of course, had a couple of songs that he had done himself, which was Wholehearted, which he had you know recorded. That's a demo actually done on an 8-track. Gary was holding a lavalier mic to sing that vocal, by the <laughs> way. Yeah. And um and also the um when I first kissed you. So those things were solely Nuno and he had producer credit on them. When the record was done, he, you know, wanted producer credit. And the time to ask for credit is not when you finish the record, it's before you do it. And I think that shaped him in a lot of ways. He was always concerned about somebody getting credit for, for something that he that he did. And that's part of like, you know, what I've noticed with him when it comes to stuff like that weird crap. But, you know, we're talking about when you're having him play guitar. For for one thing, persistence works with him. You just got to be ready to take whatever's going with it. Like I've had him play in a couple of things, but, you know, I'll have a client sometimes will say, you know, can get Nuno to play in this and I'll force them to go through the proper path. Because if I call Nuno and say, I want you to play in this, he'll just play on it. But I don't call favors in from him unless I absolutely feel he's the person for the job, you know. Otherwise, so you know, however you pull that off, Benny, that's that's a miracle. I'm just telling you. <laughs> Benny pulls a lot of miracles in terms that, of uh, that, that one's people next, into that's a next well, level. There, there's one. Here's the third level miracle of that. So if you listen to take another piece, mm-hmm. Nuno 
and Marty Friedman both said, don't play over me. But specifically, Marty said, you can do whatever you want, but don't harmonize me. I've done all the harmony that needs to be done. Nuno, first off, said, fuck that. Because he's like, and he, I think his words exactly to me was like, I'm a boy from Boston and you're going to tell me not to hammer home the Boston harmonies. So he does harmonies. So I said, fuck it. I called Alex Skolnick from Testament and said, hey, can you take these harmonies home and make them like clean? He's like, sure. Because he's the agreeable one of those three maniacs. Right, right, and, right. and he's like, oh, they know each other. We've all gotten lunch together. So he's, he was like where Nuno and Marty acted like they've never met each other. They don't know of each other. Not, Alec is like, oh, yeah, we all hung out in Japan 16 times. <laughs> but if you listen to the middle of that, it's Alex Skolnick, Marty Friedman, and Nuno Betancourt all playing together these beautiful harmonies that you would have thought that they worked out together, but no. I, I, when it was I heard all that, smoke that and mirrors. Out, I thought that was very clever, actually. Yeah, no, it was really <laughs> just because know. they all they all didn't listen to me. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't listen to Marty Friedman, so I just said, you know what, Nuno, I agree with you. And then I said, Alex Goldick, let's just make this as, listen, as once, the best once, we could. Once it leaves his studio, it's yours. What else is there to say? People send yeah. me stuff all the time. I change the notes if I don't like them. <laughs> I gotta sit there and mix it. I'm not gonna listen to you suck for for two days. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's amazing. I would, all right, so I would be remiss if I didn't dig a little deeper into this, because mm -hmm. Porn Graffiti is one of my favorite uh, records of all time. Uh, mm -hmm. Like sonically, I think it, it shaped my direction as an engineer alone, but mm -hmm. also just obviously Nuno and the performances and everything. Um, can you talk a little bit more about you know how you guys? Uh, achieve that sound uh, you know because you are working with it's it sounds very open and and sparse but still so big like so what was the approach to like creating that that sound i mean you probably already can guess that you know nuno playing through a gorilla amp sounds like nuno nuno playing through a direct box plugged into the console sounds like nuno um that sound is a part of it i mean i recorded him uh, on that song uh, i recorded that song they did with steven tyler that the brown sugar um and Nuno playing through Johnny Depp's really awful cigar box guitar still sounds like Nuno. It doesn't matter. And, you know, I walk by the action and the car is like this high. I'm like, what have you got there? I'm looking at him. He's like, I can't play this thing, but I promised, you know, it was like, it was like a condition that Johnny wanted to be there at the sessions. And Nuno says, we can't have him here. We're not going to get anything done. And, uh, and so, because all those guys were friends, Steven Tyler and Joe Perry. So the compromise was Nuno would play Johnny Depp's guitar and amp. It was one of those, you ever see those amps? They look like they're made out of boxes or something. It's become, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. all, all very boutique-y. Uh, but even him playing that weird guitar sounded like Nuno. When we were doing, you know, when we were first recording, we were always chasing a sound. You know, Nuno loved Warren D. Martini. And we loved rat because that was the thing at the time. And if you go back and listen to extreme one, that tone is very similar to rat extreme two. And I, I keep trying to, I have a cassette that has the rough mixes we did before we went to LA, um, of extreme of extreme two. Um, when we got there, Wagner had that setup that he had used with skid row, uh, where he had the ADA preamp and a Macintosh power amp. And he had this one cab that was a, I believe, slant Marshall cab, but 20, 20 watt Celestians in it. And Wagner set this up. He says, try this mic. It was a Fostex printed ribbon mic, a weird looking square mic. And honestly, it's like a lot of ribbon mics. Put it anywhere and it sounds good. We put that right there, almost against the grill. Came back in, he used the John Hardy mic preamp and um, a Yuri 10 band graphic EQ that he kind of notched out a little bit of the mid-range. And then I'm not sure, because he used these BBE Sonic Maximizer processor things a lot. I can't remember where that was in the chain. Uh, on Gear Sluts, there was a, a post that uh, somebody had asked, and I went into detail, and Wagner got involved. And the two of us, between the two of us, I think we were able to remember it. You know, <laughs> it wasn't my setup. And then, you know, from there, you know, the thing with Nuno, he doesn't have a lot of patience for fooling around with guitar tones, you know? And by the time we did Extreme 3, it was like we picked out an amp just listening to them, whichever one. That was the Saldano on Extreme 3. And we tried everything. We tried different amps, different cabs. Then it's like put a mic in front of it. And, you know, still my basic miking then, I think I used 87s. I used maybe one or two 87s on the cab, and that was it. And with Nuno, it's, you know, he's playing guitar, 
he's tuning guitar, he starts jamming something, you've got 10 minutes. <laughs> you better make good use of it. Because at the end of 10 minutes, we're going to record, you know, and unless there's something really screwed up with the sound, that's what we've got. So for me, that taught me how to do that quickly. None of this, we're going to spend three hours and then we're going to go get Starbucks and see uh, what it sounds like, because <laughs> your ears are very elastic. And what they will do invariably is even when you're trying to get a different sound, you'll start going towards the last sound that you had, which you already didn't like, you know. Um, so that was the creative process with him. You had to do it fast. He had something in his mind. Even when we did the Extreme 2, we didn't spend a lot of time fooling around with that. You know, that preamp sounded great with him. And, you know, somewhere during the album, towards the end, I think when we got to Little Jack Horney, the thing broke. The transformer went on it. And Wagner had it sent to 88 to fix. And he says, don't touch anything. Just change the transformer. But when it came back, it just never sounded the same. We knew right away. Wagner said it. I said it. And it was just like, I don't know what happened. There was something magical going on there. I don't know if a tube died. Um, but the sound is him. Of course, you got to remember, and I'm not, I don't think he was using the rat pedal with that. I don't think, but... Mm. I didn't keep notes back then. From Extreme 3 on, I can tell you everything down to whatever setting was on which amp and which song. But from that was basically classic rock and roll. Like that record was recorded. We spent probably eight or nine days at Cortland recording it and then probably three weeks in LA recording it. And that was it. We were done. Yeah. You know, like we used to do records, not think about <laughs> it so much. <laughs> That's amazing, though, to hear that, because you're right. I mean, it was interesting that you said, you know, your ear will tend to go back to the last thing and then you don't really like it anymore. Yeah. And it, is that something that you think is arose with the digital age of you can just tinker forever and, you know, you don't really have to commit as early to a um, sound or the, the not committing thing is a real massive problem um, because it allows you to not get it right in the first place and say, oh, we'll fix this later. And that's not the way we should be doing this. Um, you know, when I record, I get the sounds I want um, and not think like, well, someday that snare is going to sound good. Because, you know, the key to making really good sounding recordings is recording what you actually want to hear and not worrying about it later. Um, the so what's happened with the digital age is people become less serious about getting the right sounds. Then it becomes something, you know, like you only see when you're watching mix with the masters. But, you know, when you've got a guy who's like, you know, been engineering for 30 years and he's got his Neve console and his, you know, $400,000 collection of microphones, that's unrealistic for the rest of the people because it's like, well, heck, I just bought a warm audio 47 and I'm going to use it with, you know, with this, you know, bearing or preamp. How come I can't get that sound? And I say, well, it's got nothing to do with your gear. It's got everything to do with your ears and what you're doing with the gear. And if you don't get the sound from the equipment in the first place, how can you possibly record it? The problem with digital is it allows us to make adjustments later. And listen, I take advantage of it. I record directs off of guitar players all the time in the event I screwed up or in the event something went wrong, or maybe I just don't like the sound, or I want to be able to combine a more saturated sound with it. I mean, you've got the technology. There's no reason to not use it. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Now, just sorry, where you're at there, I just want to point out, you know, talking about getting it right at the source. Uh, mm -hmm. I know for me, you know, as I was like, teaching myself to to mix and, and do production all that stuff and then i would subscribe to things like mix with the masters and, and watch all these videos of, of really high-end engineers doing a mix where they have one eq plugin on a couple channels and they're making these like small moves and then the mix sounds immaculate and i'm like dude i have 30 plugins trying to get rid of the garbage you know noise in the back i'm like how are these people doing it? i'm like oh because the actual Source tracking material. and arrangement yeah. is beautiful if you just spend time getting the sound that's actually part of the battle that means standing next to your amp is this the sound you want because if that's not the sound you want why am i recording it i can't make it be something that it isn't and you know uh, the final point to that is people actually need to use the technology and not let the technology use them and what's happened is there's so much available that you start getting all wrapped up in well what kind of really you know fly thing can i do with this plugin when just record it right in the first place that's what that's what sounds the hugest is when you just get the sound in the first place 
It's it's so important that you say that because one of the first things I was told is if you record it uh, the way you want it to tape, mixing it is just leveling. And that's mm-hmm. it, you know, and then it's going to sound pretty much what it is versus like, oh, I have this vision, but it's nothing like that. If you're just making sure it sounds good to tape. And one thing that it's also not limiting yourself because, you know, I came from an interesting time where my first recording was at Longview Farm Studios, where we I used analog and we had and we had a Neve board. Yeah, RIP. They don't RIP. exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and going and spending fifteen hundred dollars a day and doing all this stuff. And then, you know, I got a Digio 2 uh, Digidesign little board with automation, eight little things. And I remember doing recordings on that and sending that to one of my mixing guys. And, and he said he couldn't believe it was made on a DAW like that. And I said, that's because technology is no longer limiting us. And, I, you know, because I remember when I listened to a four track and it didn't sound right. But like once you got to digital, it's one of those things where it's like it's in your hands now. So it seems like it's a liberating thing in the sense that, oh, now, you know, instead of having a million dollar buy in, you have to have a Neve. You have to have all this stuff. You can just have an, a, an Apple computer and a mm-hmm. microphone. But whether it sounds good or not just like before is up to you. And yeah. the one thing that you have to bring that I want to mention is, so I've seen all these different articles, the gear sluts thing example. Um, yeah. oh, this is how Nuno sounded. And all I know, I know people that love Nuno and they want to get all these pieces of equipment. And what I always remind people is, yeah, but the X factor is Nuno's hand. Just like the X factor is like, if I give you a bunch of SM57s and an, you know, an eight channel board, you'll probably make something rad. Whereas you have all these, you know, rap producers sitting in their basement, you know, with these amazing, all this amazing gear and they're stifled by plugins and they can't even commit to a take. Yeah. And committing is important. I mean, when I'm producing stuff to this day, I make composites of everything. I seriously don't want to look down at this console and see 60 tracks of background vocals or keyboards or crazy layers of crap that I don't want to think about it. When we were cutting Extreme 4, I remember I was on the phone. I was, I was actually living in Boston then. And, you know, Nuno called me up and said, listen, I got an idea for this. And he says, you know, this is going to be more raw than Extreme 3. We're going for a more stripped down approach. And he talked about it because we, I knew we were going to Criteria to do it, where they had that beautiful Neve 8068 and the big room. And I said, why don't we actually just keep the drums on three tracks where we can't change the balance? He's like, well, I don't know. I says, no, no, no. We'll, we're going to record the drums also, but I'm going to make a mix of the drums and we're going to use those for all of the tracking. Because, you know, part of the thing, the records we grow up with, I mean, Bonham didn't want anybody to even put mics near his kit. There was no direct mics. There was no mics on the toms or any crazy crap like that. Um, I said, is that we all perform to the mix that you've got. So the problem is if I'm always diddling around with the mix while people are tracking or I change it when we're cutting vocals, it changes how you feel the groove. And he's like, that's ah, an interesting thought. And still in the back of my mind, I had no idea if I was even going to be able to pull this crap off. But when we were there, I made a, a mix of the drums. On the, the Neve has a, a monitor section. We call it the jukebox. It's basically just 24 little faders. And this had four outputs. Had a, it was a quad board. So I used the rear outputs to root the drums through a compressor. And I recorded kick separate and then just the mix of the drums. And that's actually the sound of Extreme 4. And we pulled it off. You know, I know a lot of fans, their favorite record because it's so shocking after hearing Extreme 3. But I'm very proud of that for it's, it's organic and raw. You know, but the songs are probably not as good as Extreme 3, but it's a fun record to listen to. I heard it for the first time in a long time, about two or three months ago. I'm like, this isn't so bad. You know, it's because it was an, an, a, a, a um, failure from a sales point standpoint in this country. People tend to look at it as a, as a serious also ran. But the thing is, that thing sold 800,000 units in Europe where people actually appreciate music like that. Um, here, 100,000 units is an abysmal failure. So. That, that's a, but that's a new, that's, that's an amazing uh, statement as far as figures concerned, because nowadays with, with, you know, first off, albums aren't a thing. It's yeah. just streaming. And now mm. you're getting these aggregates uh, of like, yeah. here's the Spotify, here's this. And if you could sell 30 or even 60,000 units, no kidding. You're, you're, you're killing it. You're yeah. killing it. A band like Iron Maiden will, will sell 60,000 units to be number one in like 25 countries. Whereas <laughs> if you're in 1993 and you're an ugly kid, Joe, and you only did 100,000, they're like, we can't we can't do another record with you. Could you imagine? <laughs> That's it. We're done. 
We're done. We're done. Hundred thousand. How many? How many more does my mom have to buy before I can finally get that Ferrari? Where it's like now a hundred thousand. What are you in John Mayer's? Pay? Are you John Mayer? Like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So the the thing is that that you know is, I, and the story I was going to tell you regarding you know how how adults record. That's what I call adults. Adults the, recording. The people who invented recording. You know, Bill Schnee, Al Schmidt, Bob Clearmount. You know. I got some tracks. I work with a lot of Christian artists in Spanish and uh, is a very well-known artist named Marcos Vidal. He gets everybody to play in his records and he doesn't have huge budgets, but like, like I knew his manager really well. He says, listen, I need you to make a instrumental track for Marcos. He's got to do this at some show. He says, they're going to send you the files on uh, DVD. And he says, all right. I knew Bill Schnee recorded this and probably produced it. So I get like, the session and it's on like four DVDs. I open it up and it's like, seriously, it's 80 tracks of music oh, recorded gosh. analog, you know? Oh. And I'm like, huh. I said, Nelson, uh, this is going to take some time. No, it won't take any time at all. I'm telling you, just turn up the faders. I'm like, well, that's impossible, you know? So, and I'm turning up the tracks and I am hearing the most impeccable, amazing recording ever. This shit will humble you. You know, you think you know how to record? No, you don't. Bill Schnee knows how to record. Give me a break, you know? And I'm looking, I'm like, holy crap. And I just started putting the faders up. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. And I had a copy of the record. And I actually, what I did was I just kept switching back and forth till I had the balance right. I didn't use a single EQ. I used a couple reverbs just because it needed reverb. And they were all live instrument live horns live strings real piano real percussion background vocals all condensed the sets groupings of tracks i'm like oh this is how adults do this yeah yeah you know? and that to me still to this day i saved those files just so i can put them on and listen to them sometime because it's like you gotta be kidding this is this is how this is done the thing is that people have kind of lost their way in that because really you haven't got as many young guys assisting the older guys like that and who are classics like i said invented recording and so they're losing a feel for what it actually needs to sound like you know you record on a neve like did you record at longview when they had the neve benny yes i did yeah that fucking console here's a funny <laughs> story about that console that console came from 301 studios in sydney that's where we mix schizophonic on that console when it was in Sydney. No. Wow. That's why. How they get that's something insane. that big? Uh, plus, EMI is uh, 301's like on the fifth floor. And of course, you see where it was in the barn at Longview. Now, I recorded, mm, well, I know that uh, uh, Nuna did Susie's Telelove record on that. And I think uh, I worked with Jonathan Mover in this band with Einstein, it was with Jane Mangini. And we did that at Longview. I'm not sure if we did that on the Neve or the SSL when we were there. But once you record on a Neve, there's actually nothing else to say. And I tell people this. I said, plug a mic in, put the mic in the right place, record it. That's all you need to know. This this is not golden ear shit. I mean, you know, uh, as engineer, you need to know which mic to pick, mm -hmm. which one complements the sound. But from there, I don't think anything actually gets better than a Neve. And I'm not speaking of like just a module that's been disemboweled from the console. I'm speaking the whole thing, you know, um, that makes my life easy. I just, just now just give me some good musicians and we're there. You know? right. <laughs> that's right. incredible. Um, yeah. listen, we're, we've already blown through our first episode here. <laughs> you killed <laughs> it. Wrap it up. This is amazing. This is amazing. <laughs> this brings up so many questions I have for part two. So, okay. So. Yeah. Uh, Bob, is there anything you want to let people know about where they can, you know, find uh, more about you or, you know, get in touch with you? I know, uh, I know you, you're on a sound better, I think, right? Yep, you, I'm on, I'm on sound better. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook under Bob St. John recording engineer. Um, sound better just for everyone. It's, it's a place where you can go online and, and hire, hire Bob to, to yeah. make your music sound amazing. <laughs> and, and also my website, which is being updated. Um, but those are the best places to find me. Very cool. Well, awesome. we're looking forward to diving a bit deeper in part two. Uh, guys, check out 2020-d.com, and uh, we'll see you next week. 
Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com. Like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. This week's throwback clip is from episode number 35 featuring Paul Geary of Extreme. Check it out. You know, because even as a local band, we took ourselves very seriously. So, like, you know, in the arenas back then, they used to have these platforms and stuff on stage, these metal, like, we would build them out of wood um and put them in trucks and show up at the clubs and actually have like platforms and risers that we just did it ourselves because to us we were just like we were an arena band playing clubs and we wanted to present ourselves that way so that's what we did welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute what's the name of that podcast that's axe to grind uh and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics... Um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot and listen to Axe for Grind podcast.